1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the two authors of the very new book, Gendered Vulnerability, How Women Work Harder to Stay in Office. The book is published by the University of Michigan Press, and the two authors are here with me today. The two authors are Jeffrey Lazarus and Amy Steigerwalt. Uh, uh, Jeff and Amy, how are you doing today? Fine, thank you. Doing well, Thanks. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jeff, maybe we can start with you and just a, a very brief introduction of who you are, and then and then uh, Amy, you can uh, introduce yourself as well. So Jeff, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself?
2: Uh, sure. My name is Jeff Lazarus, and I'm associate professor of political science at Georgia State University. Great. And Amy, how about yourself?
0: Um, my name is Amy Steigerwald, and I am, as of last week, a full professor, actually, at Georgia State University, both of us in the Department of Political Science.
1: Well, well, fantastic. Congratulations on promotion. Uh, it's so fun when that happens in between the publication of a book and and uh, my chance to talk to the author. So congratulations on that. Uh, this is really, really interesting. And, and um, you know, so many books are timely and uh, is, is said often, but this really is a very timely book. Um, Jeff, maybe we can start with with you. Uh, the, the book is co- uh, could be called, uh, if you were to retitle it, uh, why every American should want a woman representing them in Washington. You guys went with the much more catchy uh, gendered vulnerability. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about that term vulnerability and, and what this has to do with you know the, the general vulnerability that every member of Congress feels and how this is somehow different for those women elected uh, uh,
2: officers. Well, When we use the word vulnerability to describe a member of Congress or any politician really, what we're talking about is the fact that they're in some danger of losing when they run for re-election. And what we're trying to get at in this book is that women experience vulnerability in a different way than men do for a couple of different reasons. Um, One of these is that there are some ways in which the electoral environment is objectively more difficult for women than it is for men. Women face um, more experienced and better funded challengers than men do. Women receive uh, qualitatively different and sometimes less press coverage than men do. So female candidates do have a tougher road to hoe in a number of different ways. In addition to that, Um, women in general are socialized very differently than men are in both their personal and professional lives. And this leads to female politicians having lower levels of self-confidence, lower levels of what uh, is sometimes jargonly called self-efficacy. And um, as a result, they judge their own levels of vulnerability to be higher, regardless of how actually vulnerable they are. So women, for both these objective and subjective reasons, always act as if they're vulnerable to losing, which leads them to, as we uh, discuss in our book, interact with constituents very differently than men do.
1: Now, Amy, you you show these differences in, in a number of different ways. Um and and one of the ways you do it early in the book is by just doing some real kind of almost anecdotal comparisons, but but I thought those kind of show what you guys are talking about. So for example, uh what do we learn by comparing Barbara Mikulski and and John McCain and and their careers? Uh and you give a couple of other examples in the book that that sort of demonstrate uh Two uh, members of the House or members of the Senate that, that in some ways are very similar, but their um, careers look very differently. So I wonder if you could talk maybe a little bit about uh, Mikulski and McCain and, and their similarities, but also how their differences illustrate the uh, thesis of the book.
0: So it's Lovely that you asked that because I actually really like that comparison. And that was one of the first things that we came up with is when I was just sort of by chance looking at the two of them and realized that they had both um entered the Senate in 1986, and both in these open seat races, so a race in which there was no incumbent, and so it was sort of wide open. And what was really interesting was to then sort of trace as they both continued on in their career and to see what happened. Because that first year, you've got lots of different candidates, you've got the primaries, um, and you have you know fairly strong general election candidates on both sides of the aisle, which is to be expected in an open seat race. And then what we really see is that Starting in that next electoral cycle, which is 1992, things change pretty dramatically. So the other thing that's interesting is that in 1986 they both win, Barbara Mikulski and John McCain, with 60.5 percent of the election. So they both win fairly easily. Uh, they're what we would consider from that point fairly safe seats. They both had you know good careers, and so we come to the 1992 electoral cycle, and McCain is uncontested in his primary and has a somewhat decent Democratic challenger, but not really. He ends up winning the general election fairly easily. Mikulski, on the other hand, faces, I think it's six primary challengers in that next race, even though she had won really quite handily. She then goes on. She's actually uh, her general election challenger is Alan Keyes um, defeats him handily, 71%. And so now we jump ahead another six years. And again, right? So Mikulski has now won, uh, with no less than 60% of the vote. This last election, she wins, you know, resoundingly with 71% of the vote. And so you would assume that she's going to win, that there's no way she's going to have a primary challenge. Actually, she receives two primary challengers. In fact, she's never had less than two primary challengers. Whereas McCain, has had, was uncontested until after the 2008 election. That was the first time that he ever had a primary challenger. But Mikulski, every single electoral cycle faced primary challengers. So that meant people from her own party doubting that. She should still be the one in office, even though she was by that point, right, the dean of the women in uh, the Senate. She was ranking member, if not chair of committees. And so sort of just comparing the two, it's while we don't know that it is primarily a gender effect. It is striking, especially when we then start to look at other sort of similar sets of um pairs like this. And we again, start to see that it is generally the woman who's facing these primary election challengers in a way that their male counterparts simply are not. um, And also the general election. But I think that primary is a really particularly interesting one, because it suggests that even members of the own party are not confident about this incumbent who, you know, is polling great in the home state. There's really no complaints about them. They are, you know, there's no reason to doubt that they're going to win re-election, but yet somehow they're still garnering all these challengers and sort of this, and it creates this perception then that the uh, member of Congress must always be concerned about what is sort of coming up behind them right? It creates that perception of vulnerability. And we argue, um, as Jeff was saying that there's a way in which that women sort of have that perception of vulnerability more so than the average male. And,
1: and Jeff, much of the book, um, looks then, uh, ahead, uh, accepting the premise that, um, that women face these kinds of challenges. The question that is, how do they respond? Um, and, and one of the ways that, that they, uh, respond and, and something that you show is they uh, bring home more bacon, uh, as they say. Uh, you So you study earmarks. Um, and, and I wonder if maybe you could first just talk about why earmarks are a useful place to look for the kinds of effects that you're interested in, and then what you found exactly by comparing uh, men and women legislators during this time period.
0: Uh, sure.
2: Uh, it's actually interesting that you ask about earmarks because this project actually came out of an earlier paper that Amy and I were doing about earmarks, and we noticed almost by accident that women were bringing home more earmarks than men were. This is almost ten years ago, and we were wondering why that could be true. and And that question sort of spun off into this entire book project. Um, so, to answer your question, earmarks are uh, spending packages that get included in congressional bills that. Um, are to a much greater extent than any other type of spending, uh, they're put there by individual members of Congress. So you can use earmarks to look at a lot of things that individual members uh, might be responsible for or might be interested in devoting time and effort to. Um, they're, They're much more Um, the result of a single person's effort than most other things in Congress. So what we uh, looked at was evidence that uh, female members are actually bringing home more money to their districts via the earmark. And that's exactly what we found. And moreover, it's not just earmarks. It's actually um, a large number of different types of what political scientists sometimes call distributive spending or uh, what's more commonly known as pork barrel spending. Um, Women bring home more money to their district in a variety of different ways. We looked at um, money that comes out of more traditional spending programs. We looked at money that came out of the 2008 stimulus package. and In a lot of different places, uh, women are just bringing home more money to their constituents. And we take that as evidence that women are um, more constituent focused in general.
1: Now, Amy, it's not just that they focus on that uh, that aspect of their role. You also study uh, the sort of legislative behavior more generally um, and, and also find some differences. Uh, how big are the differences uh, uh, that you find in the women and male legislators uh, introducing bills and and sort of legislating more generally. Is the the same pattern that you found for um, earmarks also what you find for for non-spending legislation?
0: It is. And so what we looked at are the uh, introductions and so how many bills women are introducing as compared to men uh, the resolutions that they introduced, and then also co-sponsorship. And so when it comes to sort of this volume of legislative activity, women simply do it more. Um, and that's even after we control for, so we know, for example, that more senior members a lot of times are more likely to um, introduce bills, right? We might assume that if you're a member of the majority, that you're more likely to do that. But even... Um, Holding those uh, factors constant, we still find that women do each of these things more. And we, in part, argue that you know, dating back to Mayhew's seminal work, the electoral uh, electoral connection that women are using these bills in many ways as a mechanism of position taking and communicating to their constituents that they are representing them, right? That they are introducing bills that are related to their interests and that they are um, ensuring that they uh, are uh, attaching those things. And I think one of the other, you know, that, and these bills are going to be ones that we sort of also found that they're ones that are particularly good sort of messaging or position taking bills because women are also much more likely to garner high numbers of co-sponsors for their bills. So again, they are, um, they're trying to address these issues that are, are popular, are of need, are of interest, and again, sort of signal back to the voters at home that women members of Congress are really trying to sort of do what they can to represent uh, their constituents.
1: Now, now, Jeff, one of the things that, that struck me was that the, the, the time period that you study is before the earmark ban. And uh, though your data don't cover this time period, I wonder what you would expect taking uh, uh, some of that that earmark tool away, even if it's not completely taken away, uh, the the removal of earmarks uh, and the ease of of introducing them. Um, Can women representatives substitute other constituent-oriented services to make up for this Uh, the the loss
2: of earmarks as a specific tool that they could use as legislators? Oh, absolutely. Um, A lot of the media attention surrounding Congress and pork barrel spending focuses on earmarks. But what gets lost in that very often is that the earmark is really just one of a large number of tools that members of Congress have to deliver money back home to their district. And um Like I said, we looked across a fair number of those tools, and what we found universally is that women are uh, on average getting more money than men are so uh the loss of the earmark is is um, disappointing to a, a lot of members of Congress, and probably more so to women than to men but i don 't think that they would have any trouble finding other ways of Getting that money home
1: now, Amy. I wonder, you know, if we sort of ex- accept uh, these these really interesting findings and these differences, uh, what do you make of the the, the findings? Um, what does it mean for women legislators to both feel the vulnerability uh, that that they that, that it really has been imposed on them, but but then also to respond? Um, is this is this a strategically wise way to approach? the job of legislating? Uh, does it, are there any costs to it? Does it come with any, um, uh, risks for, for women legislators? Do they, do they lose anything in, in, in pursuing, uh, their, their jobs in this fashion?
0: So those are all really great questions. And I think there are, there's a number of different facets to sort of what we argue and what we've found. I do think that one part that's important is sort of emphasizing that the the notion of gendered vulnerability applies both to sort of the newly elected as well as the more veteran members. So one of the things that I found most interesting when interviewing uh, both people who are currently serving on the Hill as well as staffers, and we tried very hard to find people to um, speak with who had worked for both male and female members and to ask them to kind of compare was how many of the people who were staffers, four members of Congress that worked for more senior female members and continued emphasizing and telling stories about how their members simply felt um, like they had to prove themselves sort of the the work harder part, that they, they worked harder, that they felt more pressure to be prepared to ensure that when they went to a committee hearing, they knew everything that was going on, that they had tons of briefing books, that they had their questions ready, that they knew what they did and what was going to be discussed. And a lot of them would compare it to the male members they worked with and say it was really interesting because the male members would walk in the door and say, what are we doing? Whereas the female members might have kept their staffers there, you know, late into the night, into the early morning, making sure that they were prepared and that they had questions ready and they knew what was going to go on. And so I think number one is this idea of that it does create this feeling, this necessary This need to be constantly prepared to ensure that you are not looking as though you don't know what's going on or that you're not ready for things. And so I think that is one part of it and might also then, you know, so that can potentially have a positive in the sense that you do see, you know, the women at the hearings are incredibly prepared and are, you know, less likely to ask, I think, questions that at times seem off topic or like they haven't, that they don't really know what's going on in the area. But the other side of it is that there is a bit of this conundrum. So on the one hand, I mentioned earlier that women introduce more bills, more resolutions, that they co-sponsor things a lot, but that they're also primarily these messaging bills. So in other words, they're ones where they send a great signal. They are very good for newsletters and ads and things like that. But the opposite side of it is that many times they're a lot less likely to actually become um, engrossed into law. So on the one hand, they are being very active, but legislative success numbers are maybe not as high as we would hope. Now, that one is particularly complex because one of the issues is voters, ironically, don't really care if bills get passed. They are much more likely to reward members for introducing bills than to carry it through. And so, you know, again, women are sort of strategically responding to that um, the other side of it is also, though, this sort of normative concern on many ways of do we want our members to be trustees or delegates? So going all the way back to Edmund Burke, the idea that, you know, sometimes we think of legislators as being there to represent our interests. And that, of course, would be the delegate model, whereas the trustee model is more of the idea that we send them there to do the best they can for the country and or for sort of the public writ large. And that does not necessarily mean faithfully reflecting their constituents' interests because at times there may be um, tension between sort of what's good for the few as opposed to what's good for the whole. And so what I think is very interesting is that what we find is – If you particularly like the delegate model and you, which a lot of times is how we talk about it, that if you want a member of Congress who's going to faithfully represent your interests and needs, women do that better. Um, across the board. They're more likely to serve on committees that reflect constituent interests, are more likely to introduce bills that policy-wise reflect their constituents' interests, and so on and so on. Um, however, it may be a downside for women. It might mean that they are limited in the areas they can get involved in because if a particular policy area is not one that matches up to their constituents' needs, then there's an argument for the female member not spending time on it or sort of staying out of that conversation. And so I think there definitely are some potential trade-offs that are occurring there.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Jeff, I wonder if um, we can just wrap up here. And, and, and the part of this that I, I, I know relates to other work that you do is, is the interactions with, with other groups. Um, all of this work on earmarks, um, the work on introducing bills um, is very time-consuming. And I would imagine the, the staff burnout for uh, women legislators who appear to be working twice as hard as their male counterparts would be quite considerable um, I wonder if there's there's any part of this that relates to uh, the differences in, in use of staff but also the reliance on on lobbyists and experts to, to aid in the legislative process is that a is that a part of, of how to think about and make sense of this work
2: uh, actually it is um... In other work that I'm doing, uh, I am actually looking at uh, the, uh, the effect of, um, I guess you might call it a usage rate on uh, staff. And what we find is that there is higher staff turnover in uh, female-led offices. That is, in uh, the offices that have female members of Congress, they have higher staff turnover rates. And this has um, significant consequences. There's work coming out now showing that um, quality of staff influences the uh, degree to which members of Congress can get their bills passed. And uh, there might also be effect on the revolving door. Uh, That is, if you have higher staff turnover, where are those departing staff going to go? Well, some of them might go into the lobbying world. And so some of this might exacerbate that phenomenon. And so I think one of the many next steps that uh come out of this work is to try to figure out um what exactly is the effect that is going on uh on staff in female's office in female members office if you know they are being asked to work harder.
1: Yeah, uh, the the book again is gendered vulnerability how women work harder to stay in office Uh, The two authors, Jeffrey Lazarus Lazarus and Amy Steigerwald, uh, and the publishers, University of Michigan Press. Thank you both so much for your time
2: today. Thank you very much.